Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. It started with a blog post that he committed to writing twice a week, which led to over 400,000 subscribers. And in 2018, James Clear published his international best-selling book, Atomic Habits. James unpacks why the tiny changes can create remarkable results. His articles reach 10 million hits every single year on his website, and his work frequently appears in publications including the New York Times, Forbes and Business Insider. With the start of 2020 coming at us, this is a timely conversation to consider what do you want to become this year? In this conversation, we dive into the connection between habits and identity, the questions that will pull us back to what really matters, and the four laws on how to make or break the habits that you want to change in your life. James shares his insights into the hacks that will change how you see habits, including the two-minute rule and the power of showing up. So take the time to absorb James's work and this year could be the true start to a life that you never thought possible, especially if you commit to it. Map out what's possible, step into new habits with these insights from James Clear. James, welcome to the studio. Hi, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Look, it's great to have you here. Atomic Habits is your book. We're going to talk a fair bit about that today. It came out last year. It's an international bestseller. We were just talking 1.2 million copies sold around the world. Yeah, it's crazy. It's been a very busy year. I'm very happy with how it's gone so far. It's, uh, that's a huge amount of books that have sold. Often when we talk about books, we, we talk about the, the writing that needs to happen, the marketing, the launch. Uh, and I'm interested in the last year. What's that year been like? And is there anything that has surprised you about that experience? Yeah, the depending on how you slice it up, I, it took somewhere between three and five years to write the book and uh, probably nine to 12 months to, to plan the marketing. And so there was a lot of like building of potential energy that was eventually released when the book came out. And this last year has just been kind of uh, a whirlwind because of that. And so some of it was expected, like, or at least hoped for. Uh, I hoped the book would do well. I hoped that I'd get to do book signings or interviews or things like that. Uh, but then there were quite a few things that were unexpected. Um, and most of those were just very random opportunities, like, you know, um, whether it was coming to new countries. So I, I think the first six months of the year, I was in 13 countries, all for the book for some in some way or shape or form, uh, which for me was a lot of travel, uh, probably more even than I would like, um, but very exciting. And then also just the range of places that I've talked about the book. Uh, I, <laughs> I was telling, uh, mentioning it earlier, telling my publicist that uh, within the span of one week, I... I did an interview on CBS this morning, which is like a popular morning show in the U.S., and uh, was in shirt and tie and like a very proper and um, like focused interview. And then that same week did a podcast interview with a health and fitness podcaster who um, I met at a dinner the night before. And he was like, oh, do you want to uh, come on my podcast? And I was like, oh, okay, sure. It sounds good. Um He's like, come over the next morning. And I went over there and he had like an infrared sauna. And he was like, hey, we should get in this and try it before we, before we did the interview. And so I stripped down to my underwear, did that for 20 <laughs> minutes and then did the interview. And um, yeah, the rain, that range of experiences is very broad, uh, but it's all talking about the same book. And so that is one kind of surprising and magical thing about putting ideas out into the world is that a book can carry you to many interesting places that maybe you weren't expecting. And I wonder if the the topic of the book as well, being habits, is something that's so transferable in different areas yeah, and different Yeah, I think that does help. Well. Yeah, you, you know, you've got like writing habits, study habits, health and fitness habits, meditation habits, study habits, um, reading habits. There's so many different types that uh, it gives you a lot of different entry points to both have conversations but also meet entirely different groups of people. Um you know, like I've t I've given speeches to uh, organizations of dentists, a uh, group of doctors, you know, corporate America, high school students. It's just it's a very broad range. And I think 
That's one thing I really like about the topic and one reason why I felt like it was worth five years of my time uh, to spend writing a book and researching that is that habits are so universal and so widely applicable. It's something that we all need. And for most books, if you ask, like, who is the audience? And you said, everybody, like, that would be a terrible answer. Uh, but I yeah, think market, habits... marketing look at you and go, hang on, no, right. <laughs> we, yes. we need to niche this. Who is your target customer? <laughs> um, but, uh, but for habits, I think that actually there is an element of truth to that, that not everybody in the book will, or not everybody in the world will read Atomic Habits, but I think pretty much anyone can look at the cover and be like, yeah, I, like, I get why that would be useful for me. I, I get why building good habits and bringing bad ones, why that's important and helpful. In the five years of research, was there any point where you might have gone, hey, this book is about something else or there's a <laughs> there's a branch off of this or was it always coming back to habits? Was that always, I guess, front and centre? Um, so there are two answers to this. The first answer is that uh, it should have always been about habits um, and there was a... F- phase, maybe like a year in, where my perfectionism kind of spiraled out of control. And I just kept collecting books and insights on human nature and habits and human behavior. And it grew from a book about habits to a book about human nature to a book about all human behaviors. And, you know, nobody can write a book on that topic. It's too big. <laughs> what brought um, you back then? Because that, because I could imagine once you start to dive into the research, you go down a rabbit warren, you go down, maybe the book's about this, or maybe people are interested in that. What, well, what brought you back to habits? I sort of felt like, well, if I really want to do a comprehensive job on this, which I, you know, I, I still feel this way now. I, my hope is that Atomic Habits is the most comprehensive book that's been written on the subject. If you want to understand how what habits are, how they work, and most importantly, how to change them, then I want this to be the one book that you should read. And who knows if I've hit that mark or not. If I do an expanded and updated edition in, say, 10 years, like that's the same thing I'll be shooting for. But th- you can see how that starts to spiral out like pretty broadly. You start to feel like you need to cover everything. Um, and so this is the second part of the answer which is that there was one question that kept bringing me back to center that kind of saved me from myself, um, which was, what is the object of the reader's desire? So whenever I didn't know what to write, whenever I wasn't sure if this should be included or not, I could just ask myself, what is the object of the reader's desire? Well, in this case, the what they are desiring is to either build a good habit or break a bad one. So if what I'm writing right now is not about that, it shouldn't be included. If what this chapter is covering is not about that, it needs to be cut. Um, did you did you come to that question through the writing process? Uh, I came across it from another writer, uh, but I don't. It wasn't about writing books. What it was, I think, it was, if I'm remembering correctly, and I don't remember the person that it came from, but um, I was about writing sales pages or advertisements, because the only way that ads work is if they deliver on what you're desiring. And I felt like the book needed to do that as well. Um, And so that kind of helped me stay focused. The first draft of the book was like 720 pages, and the finished version of Atomic Habits is about 250. So, uh, you know, I compressed and cut a lot, and that question did a lot of the heavy lifting for that. But I sort of thought, well, if one out of every three pages I write isn't any good, then I got a real problem, right? Like <laughs> if we've cut it down by that much and there's not something useful to say here, then, then we're really struggling. So I think that's kind of how I write in general, though, is I, I cover a lot of ground and then I compress and try to retain the potency of the idea while saying it in fewer words or in a more effective way. And for mine, that's what, that's where you're describing that's the niche. So when you talk about it, it's an interesting, it's of interest to people because it's so niche. Uh, why habits? So um, there are like big picture answers and more detailed answers. The big picture answer is that pretty much every area of your life is at least to some degree a lagging uh, measure of your habits. Like your um, physical fitness is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Your uh, clutter in your bedroom or on your desk at work is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. Um, So there certainly is an an element of luck, randomness, uncertainty. All, All those things impact your outcomes in life. But by definition, luck is not under your control, but your habits are. 
and so I think the only rational approach is to focus on what you can control. And uh, because they exert such a strong influence on your results and because they're under your control, I think it makes them a very important thing to focus on. Um, I do think it's worth noting habits are not the only thing that matters, right? Like they're, I think they're one of the two big pillars for results in life. The one, the first are your habits and the, the second are your choices. You're, you're the strategy that you follow. And you can imagine like, um, if you have two entrepreneurs, one of them starts a software company and one of them starts a pizza shop. Most people would say the software company probably has the greater potential energy, the higher trajectory, the the more promising future. And so that's strategy. That's the choice. Which one do you, do you choose to start? But you can imagine many entrepreneurs who might have great habits and they start a pizza shop versus someone who has a good software idea but has terrible habits and doesn't execute. The one with the better habits may end up capturing more of that potential energy and actually getting better results. Now, ultimately, what we want is to have both great strategy and great habits. Um, but I think those two work together. And so it's not only about habits, but man, they play a really crucial role. And they kind of determine whatever opportunities that come to you in life, whether they're big or small, your habits determine whether you capitalize on that, whether you gain some of the benefit that is available to you. I think it's really powerful to have those that discernment to go, well, what is my choice and actually consider this strategy mm-hmm. and therefore what are the what are the behaviours or the habits that we might right. kick into around that. With with the book being so successful and um, and certainly you you've described travelling internationally and having conversations around habits. I'm wondering in some ways whether you've become like the high priest of confessionals when it comes to habits, people sharing with you their their deepest, darkest habits or things that they want to shift and change. Is there any that have come to mind that have come up in conversations that you've have, have had while you've travelled around the world? Yeah, um, it is interesting to see. Uh, I tend to get more of those confessionals via email than face-to-face. So my email newsletter is fairly sizable as well. Um, And when I send out messages, like I I sent out one today, um, usually go out to 500,000 people or so, and there'll be a lot of replies from people who are kind of either feel guilt or shame about their habits or they just feel uh, kind of frustrated or like they're giving up hope. They feel like they can't change them. A lot of the big categories are what you would expect. Uh, health and fitness is a really big one. So whether it's you know doing push-up each day or uh, not just physical health but also mental health, meditation or reading, things like that, um, stress reduction, those are that's a very common category. Productivity and time management is probably another very common one. Uh, but the category that I wasn't expecting that I've heard a lot about are – I guess for lack of a better word, like ones that impact your social relationships. Um, And sometimes that's like, you know, marriage habits or things like that or habits of affection. Um, But sometimes it's also like friend groups and how those impact your habits. Like a lot of young people, particularly in the United States, if you live in a big city, you feel like you have to go out to happy hour or restaurants or go out to the bars with your friends because otherwise you get ostracized from the friend group. But it ends up causing a lot of financial stress because they feel like they don't have money to go out every week, but that's what everybody's doing, so they feel a social pressure to do so. And that's really interesting. Uh, and I think um, I've heard a lot more than that about that than I expected to. And it also has raised some questions for me about the influence that the social environment has on our habits and behaviors because I think it's a very significant pull. Peer pressure can be positive or negative, and I've, I've heard a lot about that in, on both sides. Yeah, I was thinking about that in terms of even preparation for our catch-up today, the the influence of our habits of the people around us. Um, and sometimes, and when you talk about choices and strategies, sometimes those choices are not ours. Mm. They're our family, they're our friends, they're people saying this is what you should do. And so therefore we're trying to fit a mould yeah. as it comes into play. And I really do wonder if that social impact has a, has a big impact on the, um, the clash around some of those habits. There are a lot of strategies you can use to get a habit to start, but if you want a habit to stick, the social environment is maybe the most important factor. Um, If you just think about some of the normal habits that we perform, things that we almost don't even uh, consider on most days, like you move into a new neighborhood and you walk outside on Tuesday night and you see that your neighbor is mowing their lawn or something. 
Well, why do we mow our lawns and trim our hedges? Partially, it feels good to have a clean lawn, but mostly it feels good to have a clean lawn because you don't want to be judged by the rest of your neighbors. <laughs> Keep up with the Joneses. <laughs> and so it's really that social expectation that gets you to perform that habit for the next 25 years or however long you live there. And we wish we could be that reliable with a lot of our other habits, right? We wish we could do something every week for 20 years. Um, and so I think that's an important question to ask yourself, which is where is there a group, where is there a tribe where my desired behavior is the normal behavior? Because if it's normal in that group, then it will perform the habit will be very attractive to you because it will help you belong. And most people, if they have to choose between – I get to have the habits that I want, but I'm ostracized from the group or I don't fit in that much. I'm cast out. Or I have habits that I don't really love, but I get to fit in and be with people. Most people would rather be wrong with the crowd than right and by themselves. The desire to belong often overpowers the desire to improve, particularly in the long run. Uh, you might be able to run against the grain of the group for a week or a month, but man, at some point that just starts to wear on you and you'd rather just not have the social friction. And so I think this is why you often see when people really build habits that stick, they often join new groups where that's normal. You know, like they pick up a reading habit because they're part of a book club or they uh, change their fitness because they join a running group or a cycling club or something like that. Um, they need sort of a at least – it doesn't have to be their whole life. It doesn't have to be 24 hours a day. But they at least need some sacred space where they can go where that behavior is normal and it's like uplifted and reinforced by the people around them. And that's one of the strongest ways to get a habit to last, I think. Do you have any insights or strategies from those conversations? Because I 100% I agree. I think it is those people around you in those environments. And as you say, it's not that you have to live in that. It can just be where, where can you go in and out. Sometimes those new environments or new social connections can come with judgment from mm. your previous or your current connections as well. Like who are you hanging out with and why are you going to the gym? And there can be judgments around that. Do you have any strategies on how to address that or deal with that in order to keep connected to the behaviors you want to be engaging in. Right. Yeah, this is a good question. There like there are really there are multiple elements to this. I mean, on the one side, um even going to the new environment where the habit is praised, you can often feel like an imposter or feel like you don't belong at first. You know, a lot of people they go to the gym for the first time, they're around other people who are working out, but they feel like they don't belong. They feel very uncertain or feel like they're being judged. Am I doing this wrong? Do I look stupid? You know, things like that. And for that reason, I think that um, there are a couple strategies. Uh, one is that you can focus on the areas that you already have overlap with those groups. So one of my favorite examples, my friend uh, Steve Cam, he runs this company called Nerd Fitness. And it's all about getting in shape, but it's specifically organized for people who identify as nerds. And so the workouts are like what Spider-Man would do for a workout or, you know, like how – what Legos can teach you about push-ups or things like that. And um, if you show up there to that community, you're like, well, I don't know what to do, but I love Star Wars and so does this other person who's already here. And we can connect over our mutual love of Star Wars and then I can like soak up the workout habit later. And um, so I guess what I'm advocating for here is looking for mutual areas of interest that uh, may not be the habit that you're looking to build right away, but allow you to form connections. And it's really about connection and belonging. And once you belong with the group, then you'll start to take on some of those other behaviors. And you actually, you see this kind of thing all the time in different communities, like a CrossFit gym. If you, people who go to CrossFit, they ostensibly they go there to work out at first, but pretty soon they're signing up for paleo meal plans and buying certain types of knee sleeves and like buying certain types of shoes. And like they're doing all this stuff that they didn't even, they're picking up habits they didn't even intend to pick up uh, once they feel like they belong with the crowd. Um, but the second thing you can do, and I think this is a, we've talked a little bit about how to get a habit to stick with the social environment. This is a great way to get a habit to start, which is I call it the two minute rule. But it basically says take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So, you know, read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes people resist that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, talk right? to me about this. Well, because they're, they're like, like, okay, I know the real goal isn't just to take my yoga mat out. Yeah, right? in two I know minutes, like, yeah. what's it really going to do? What's that going to do? Exactly. So I, I have this reader, uh, this guy named Mitch. I mentioned him in, in the book. 
And uh, he ended up losing a lot of weight, 100 pounds, 40, 50 kilos, something like that. And for the first six weeks that he went to the gym, he had a little rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would go to the gym, drive, get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds silly. It sounds ridiculous. It's just like what you just said. What's that going to do? But if you step back, what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And I think that that's a deeper truth about habits that is often overlooked, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? It has to become the standard in your life before you can optimize it or scale it up into anything bigger. And for whatever reason with habits, we're often so focused on optimizing. We're so focused on finding the perfect business plan, the ideal workout program, the best, uh, you know, diet to follow. We're so focused on finding the perfect thing that we don't give ourselves permission to show up even if it's just in a small way. And so I think the two-minute rule kind of helps you get over that. It helps get past that perfectionism. I love it because it actually requires you right at the very start to almost discern what well, what is success look like because we set these habits whether you say, you know, I want to go to the yoga four days a week. So mm. then if I only go three, I've lost. Mm. Um, whereas what you're describing is there's a different layer of success and success mm. just to start is about showing up. So that it's actually, kind of liberating. Yeah, that's a, I think you're making an important point there, which I would phrase, we could phrase it in a different way as well, which is um, one of the most pervasive, uh, what do I want to say? One of the most lasting forms of motivation for humans is a feeling of progress. If you have signals of progress, then you have every reason to feel motivated and continue because you're making progress, you're moving toward your ultimate destination. And in many ways, starting with a really small habit, it facilitates feelings of progress. It facilitates signals of that. If you set your, your goal to do 100 push-ups a day, um, and on the good days, yeah, you can figure out a way to get 100 push-ups in. But on days when you're tired or exhausted or you're sick or your kids need you for something or you have to help out your parents or, you know, work is just crazy, you're not able to stick with it. And then immediately what happens is that it, let's say you on any – pretty much any day, you could do one push-up, right? Anybody has enough time. Um, if you make that the goal, then you feel like a success. But if you made it 100 and you only did one or five or even 10, uh, you feel like a failure because you didn't hit that mark. And so it's it's a weird thing that our expectations kind of play on us um, in that way. So I think for that reason, it's very helpful, particularly in the beginning before it's a habit to set the bar low, develop a feeling of progress and uh, master the art of showing up. I love it. It feels so counterintuitive, but it's the regularity, it's the consistency of it, which is what you know, habits are all about. In the book, you talk about the slow pace of transformation, mm. which I think ties into this really, really nicely, is yes, show up. But what if you don't see the results? Again, motivation is connected to started, starting to see some change. How do I know that I'm showing up in the right way at the right time? Mm. Or am I, you know, have I got my ladder leaning against the wrong wall and I should be doing something else? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I think the answer, at least one of the answers, is you need some feedback. Um, because if you are performing an action but not getting feedback, you have no way to measure or know whether or not you're making progress. Um there is a certain level of persistence and grit and consistency that I think does need to be like brought to the table to start with. I love the – there's a quote I mentioned in the book, the San Antonio Spurs NBA basketball team. They've won five championships and they have this quote hanging in their locker room that says, um, whenever I feel like giving up, I think about the stonecutter who takes his hammer and bangs on the rock a hundred times without it showing a crack. And then at the 101st blow, it splits in two. And I know that it wasn't the 101st that did it, but all the 100 that came before. And I think so many of our habits are like that. It's not the last sentence that writes the novel. It's all the ones that came before. It's not the last workout that changes your body. It's all the ones that came before. And you need some willingness to be consistent and, pers uh, and persistent in order for those to show up. But along the way, it's important to have a little bit of feedback. And so I think the key here, I have a chapter where I talk about measurement and measuring your habits, and there's kind of, there's more nuance to it. But one of the keys is choosing a pace of measurement that matches the pace of the habit that you need to perform. So like take my dad, for example, 
he likes to swim. On any given day, when he goes and swims, he gets out of the water and his body looks exactly the same, right? There's no be- there's no visual improvement, no visual feedback uh, of the benefits of that workout. But he has a little pocket calendar and he pulls that out and he puts an X on that day. And that little habit tracker, the, the X is on the calendar, that is a form of feedback, a form of visual measurement that matches the pace that he needs to maintain of the workout. And so if it was just about the number on the scale, that might change too slowly. If it's just about how his body looks in the mirror, that definitely changes too slowly. But if it's about how many X's I'm building up in my current streak, that's fast enough that it matches the pace of the habit. And so it's, um, it's, the, it's a form of feedback that is quick enough to help maintain the motivation. And it's um, particularly that habit striking, there's something about you don't want to, you don't want to be that day. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you don't not cross that off. That idea can be powerful. Don't break the chain. You yeah. know, like you don't want to be, you don't want it to be a day where you, where you miss up or slip up and, uh, and miss. And then all of a sudden the streak is broken. I will add something to that do- though, which I think is powerful. Um, at some point, every habit streak breaks, right? You, you get sick or your kids need something or whatever. And when that happens, the mantra I like to keep in mind is never miss twice. Um, and so it's like, well, all right, I wish I hadn't missed my swimming workout, but never miss twice. So let me make sure next morning I get in. And I think we all sort of implicitly know this, which is that it's never the first mistake that ruins you. It's like the spiral of repeated mistakes. That, it's letting missing become a new habit that that's the real problem. Yeah, that's a great point. And so if you can find a way to get back on track, right, (laughs) if you can never miss twice, then it's just a blip on the radar at the end of the year. Yeah, and in the grand scheme of a lifetime, it's nothing. One of the things, like you're not the first person to talk about habits. There's been a huge amount of research that's led up and and, and certainly in the five years that you've um, dived into it. But it's incredibly accessible, this book, Mm. and there is something about it that is powerful. One of the things that really was an aha for me when I read through it was a connection between habits and identity. And I think you've brought that together in a way I've never seen before. Why why is identity important when we talk about habits? Yeah, I, I think this is a crucial question, maybe the most important question about habits. You know, often when we talk about habits, we talk about them as the avenue for changing our external results. They can help you get six-pack abs or lose weight or make more money or reduce stress. And it's true. Habits can help you do all of those things, and that's great. But I think the real reason, the deeper, maybe true reason habits matter is that they are a method for changing or shifting your self-image, for getting you to believe something new about yourself. And the way that I would describe this is that your habits are kind of how you embody a particular identity. Like every morning that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Or if you study biology every Tuesday night for 20 minutes, you embody the identity of someone who is studious. And the first time that you do things, you don't necessarily believe that about yourself. Like you may not say, you may not study biology one time and then think I'm a studious person. But if you keep doing it every week, at some point, you cross this invisible threshold where you, you're like, well, I guess I have to admit to myself that part of my identity is that I am studious. And this, I think, is perhaps the most powerful thing that habits and even small habits do, which is they cast a vote for the type of person that you wish to become. And so in that way, you can sort of summarize the, the power that habits have by saying every action you take is a vote for that type of person. And so, no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who is a writer. And no, doing one push-up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And the more that you cast those votes, the more you build up this little, like, body of evidence of this is the type of person I am. And I think this is more powerful than one of the common things you hear, which is, like, fake it till you make it. And fake it till you make it, I, I don't necessarily have anything wrong with it. Like, it's asking you to believe something positive about yourself. But it's asking you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion, right? Like, at some point, your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what you're saying and what you're doing. And so my argument is, let's let the behavior lead the way. Let the, you know, by doing one push-up, you cannot deny that in that moment, you were the type of person who didn't miss workouts. And so that evidence, that little bit of evidence, even just for a minute, um, it is something 
it's a little bit of proof to root that new identity in. And ultimately, I think that that's the long-term power habits have is that they can allow you to shift that, that identity. And it's why I say like the real goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. Right? The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer, or not to do a silent meditation retreat, to become a meditator. And true behavior change is really identity change in that sense. You know, once you've become that person or start to identify in that way, you're not even really trying to convince yourself anymore to do the action. You're just like, yeah, this is just what I do. Um, because I'm a runner or because, it, yeah. Right. Are people ever resistant to that? And one of the one of the reasons why I ask that question is particularly that one about being a runner. It's something I've picked up later in life, um, I've started doing it. It wasn't until people started to say to me that you're a runner and I spent, no, I'm not. Like I'm just mm. out going for a run. And I think I'd run two marathons at that point, but still wasn't convinced that I was a runner because runners are fast. They're super fit. They go mm. out every day. They do 10Ks a day. I don't do that. So is there some resistance in embodying those identities yeah. that that actually can backfire on, on us in our own habits? It's an interesting thing. It probably wasn't until about three to six months after Atomic Habits came out that I identified as an author, which is so, isn't it so strange? It's like, no, it's already That's been ironic. written, right? It's already here. Yeah. Um, so was there a moment then or did well, someone tell you that you're an author There wasn't a moment, or? but I, I think where I currently fall in this is that, so like in your case with, with running, um, you've got sort of a lifetime of evidence of not being that. And it can take a surprisingly long amount of time for the scale to shift, for the the amount of evidence on the other side of the scale to outweigh that and for you to feel like, okay, this is who I am now. Um, and so I think in the long run, that's ultimately what we're looking for with habits. But in the short run, this is why you need a lot of the other strategies that I talk about in the book, whether it's habit tracking and putting an X on the calendar or um, using the two-minute rule or whatever it is. These other strategies are really useful while you're bridging that gap uh, and thinking, I'm still not, I'm just out for a run. I'm not a runner. Uh, and all those things can be very helpful for that period uh, as you're working through it. I also think about, there's a book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And he talks mostly about writing habits in there. And he had a little uh, example that he gave where he talked about, you know, if you, a wolf, for example, has like a territory. And uh, you as a writer, or you could apply it to any other habit, have a territory as well. But the only way that it starts to feel like your territory, like it's your home, is if you spend a lot of time there. And so early on, the first time you go to the gym, you don't feel like it's your territory. You feel like this is a foreign place and I'm, I don't fit. I'm an fit. imposter, right. yeah. Um, and so there's this uh, period of time with any habit where you're doing it and from the outside, people look at you and they're like, you just trained for six months and ran a marathon. You're a runner. And you're like, no, it still doesn't quite feel like my territory yet. And so... The threshold of crossing that, I think, is just kind of an invisible line, and we don't know exactly when it happens and it changes for each habit we're talking about. But I do think that there is a, a time that comes that when you show up enough, you feel like, yeah, this is home now. This is where I belong. I think one of the things you do in the book is an invitation to bring that consciousness earlier. Mm. It's almost a permission to go, well, at least ask, what would that look like? Mm. Or what, when would I define myself as an author? Or when would I define myself as a runner? Mm. Uh, which is a really interesting invitation for people to kind of sit in, I think. Where, is there ever a time where it, there's an identity clash in a particular moment? And what I mean by that is, um, I think of myself, for example, I've got two kids and there are some mornings where I want to embody the person who gets up early and goes for a run. And I also want to embody the parent who's there for my children. And it feels like in that same hour, those mm. two identities can clash. Have you come across that? And are there any kind of strategies on how to reconcile that in yeah, that moment? This is, a, this is a big question. And um, we could phrase it in a variety of ways. You could phrase it like identity clashing. You could phrase it as your priorities or your values clashing. And um, for a long time, what I thought was uh, – my friend Tim Urban has this um, – This uh, he kind of talks about values or priorities as being like a ladder, uh, you know. And so like, well, maybe, uh, for example, you're uh, going for a run is like on the third rung, but actually being a parent is on the second rung. And so when they compete, that's the one that wins. Uh, and so you decide, I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to do the run. I'll be with my kids. And you wish you didn't have to make that trade off, but that's kind of – there's like this ranking of the the priorities. 
And I used to think that that was a good way to think about it, and it still is to a certain degree. But I think in real life, it's often much more complex than that. Most people would probably say, oh, family is more of a priority for me than work. Or uh, my health. I know that if I don't have my health, I don't have anything, and so that should be a priority. But actually, if you look at how people behave on a daily basis, a lot of people will choose to work late to finish the project rather than to get home by dinner or to uh, spend an extra hour getting into the office rather than skip the workout or whatever. And I think the truth is there's for each value, for each identity that we have, there's a certain level of urgency or priority attached to that on any given day. And most of the time, if your health is reasonably good and you don't have any emergency, that does not occupy the top rung, even if ultimately in the big picture of life we'll say, yes, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Most days it's actually not. So there's much more of a shifting of that on a daily basis. Um, and so I haven't come up with a good way to define that yet other than to say like it's kind of this, um, yeah, this collection of moving targets. Um, but the question about like what happens when those identities come into conflict, that's kind of the moment when you actually find out what your identity really is. If it's not in conflict, then you never have to make a trade-off, right? And so you don't actually know what the true priority is. Um, so I don't, I don't have an – obviously, it's going to differ for each person what the and, identities and, are or whatever. And I think sometimes it even differs – each week. Right. Because <laughs> if I haven't seen the kids for a week, then that becomes a priority. But I've, I've seen them and I'm done with them. <laughs> yes. I'm happy to have an hour out. Right. So sometimes that can be what else is happening is my perspective on it as so well. I've actually heard this for a lot of habits. People say, um, I tend to, it's very easy for me to skip my run, for example, if I've had four days in a row where I've run. Because I'm like, oh, no, things are going well. Like, I'm okay. Mm. But if I've missed for four days in a row, then I'm like, I got I to gotta get out there. I have to make this a priority. It's very similar to what you just mentioned there with kids or something else. It's like when your capacity in a given area is high, uh, it's easy to rationalize letting it slip once or twice. Um, and I don't quite know where I fall on that because on the one hand, I feel like maybe that's the time when it's most important to, to get in because if you if it's easy for you to rationalize and let it slip, then it's easy for it to become something that, oh, shoot, two weeks passed and I haven't done this now. Um, but it's a very – I think the question that you're asking is a very important one. I don't know that I have a good answer to it, but we all have these um, uh, trade-offs that we have to make. I do have one other thing that I think is worth adding, which is – I think any ambitious person, they don't like the fact that they have to make trade-offs because there's a lot of things you'd like to be able to achieve. Like you would like to be able to run a faster marathon time and be a great parent and do high-quality work and so on. And um, the question that I keep coming back to is what season am I in right now? And so I like this idea that life kind of has different phases of seasons, and you can define that however you'd like. Maybe it's a big picture one, like what is the season of this decade, or maybe it's a much smaller thing, what season am I in this month or this week. But um, if I ask myself what season am I in, for like me currently, I don't have kids yet, so I'm in a pretty career-heavy season and personal health-focused. And if you imagine like burners on a stove, the family burners probably turn down pretty low, and maybe the friends burner too even. But at some point, I will have kids, and that will sh signal a shift in seasons. And now the family burner needs to get cranked up, and maybe something else has to get put on low. And I don't like that I have to make that trade-off, but I do think it's important to ask what season am I in, and are my habits matching the season that I'm in right now? Uh, because habits don't have to be permanent in your life. They may just be permanent for a season. Um, but that quite line of questioning can kind of help you figure out Another way to say this is like, what am I optimizing for? Mm. You know, like right now, you may be optimizing for money or for time or for family or whatever it is for you. But what you optimize for may shift over the decades or even over the weeks and months. In your book, you talk about these four laws and you talk about both not, uh, you know, making new habits, but also breaking mm -hmm. other habits. And I think it's the second part of that that we often don't refer to. We go, well, I need to make new habits, but we have to have the time for that, right? And sometimes none of us are sitting around going, geez, I've got a day. I wish I knew what to do with it. <laughs> well, all our days are full, so something has to give. Um, what are the, the four laws that you unpack in your book, if you could dive into those for us? So roughly speaking, if you want a habit to form, you 
you need about four things to happen. And you don't need all four to happen at the same time, but the more of these that you have going for you, the, the better position you'll be in. So the first thing is that you want your good habits to be obvious. Uh, you want the cues of your good habits to be obvious, available, visible, easy to see. The easier they are to see, the easier it is that they'll catch your attention. Um, the second thing that you want is you want your habits to be attractive. The more attractive or appealing a habit is, the more likely you are to feel motivated to do it. The third thing, the third law of behavior change is you want to make it easy. The easier, more convenient, frictionless, simple your habits are, the more likely they are to be performed. And then the fourth and final thing is you want to make it satisfying. You want your habits to be rewarding and pleasurable. And you need some kind of, not every experience in life is rewarding. You know, sometimes there's a consequence. Sometimes it's just sort of neutral. But if a habit is not rewarding or if a behavior is not rewarding, it's unlikely to become a habit. So those four, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. That sort of gives you a high-level picture for how to build a good habit. And then if we want to talk about what you just mentioned, if we want to break a bad habit, then you just invert each of those four. So rather than making the cues of your good habits obvious, you want to make the cues of your bad habits invisible. So if you're trying to stick to a diet, don't follow food bloggers on Instagram. If you want to spend less money late night shopping, unsubscribe from emails from the latest fashion brands or stores. If you feel like you're spending too much money on electronics, don't read the latest tech review blogs. And so that exposure, make it invisible. Second, make it unattractive instead of making it attractive. Third, make it uh, difficult instead of easy. So increase friction, add steps. Uh, and then fourth, make it unsatisfying instead of making it satisfying. Add a cost, add some kind of consequence to the behavior. And um, so those four steps sort of give you like the big picture view of how to shape a habit. They give you like four different places to intervene if you want to build a good habit or break a bad one. And I can imagine, I can see why, um, I mean, one of my questions was, like, what about those habits or those things that we do that we know we don't want to do anymore, but we almost can't? We feel like we we just can't stop ourselves from doing it. Why is that? Mm. Um, and as you were talking, I'm almost going, well, it might be because it's right there in front of you. It's too easy to do. <laughs> like, right. it's all the things that you say mm -hmm. you want to create. A new habit is actually the, those things that, that you're kind of stopping. So reversing that. It can partially be because of those reasons that so you just mentioned. You know, it's too obvious. It's too convenient. Smartphones are like this a lot. The action is so frictionless. So, like, our phones are literally often like a millimeter from our skin. You know, they're like right there in your pocket at all times. It's so frictionless, so easy that we find ourselves sliding into it even if we don't really want to do it or don't want to – like, I um, – one of, a good habit that I've built recently over the last year or two is um, I'll leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And I have a home office, so if I if I have my phone on me, if I take it in, I, I don't do it all the time, but I probably do it 90% of days. But if I, if I bring my phone in, and uh, I'm like everybody else, I'll check it every three minutes, right? But if, uh, if I leave it in another room, it's only 30 seconds away. But I never go get it, which is always interesting to me. I'm like, well, did I want it or not? You know, like in the one sense... I wanted it bad enough to check it every three minutes when it's next to me. But in the other sense, I never wanted it bad enough to work 30 seconds to go get it. And I think a lot of our technology habits are like that. They're so convenient, so frictionless that the slightest whim of desire, we act on them. So uh, what prompted you to, to change that? Uh, I realized that when I had my phone on me, I was spending more time responding to everybody else's agenda than working on my own. And whether that was like reading things on social media, replying to comments, checking email, and then like, you know, getting sucked into whatever thing was there. But most people, I, somebody asked me uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually it was a reader who uh, it was on Twitter, and he said, what is one thing everybody in the world can get better at? And it took me a while to come up with something that I felt was a decent answer. But um, what I ended up saying was allocating your attention it's almost guaranteed that nobody in the world is always focused on the highest and best use of their time. Uh, and in that sense, phones, despite their power, and they do have a great, a lot of power and productivity and wonderful things they provide, they also are like distraction machines for your attention. And it's very unlikely that the best thing for you to be working on is whatever happens to pop up in your inbox or on social media or the notification on your phone or whatever. And so I, I figured I wanted to be a little more intentional about that and like leave it in, in another room. And then I can, I got plenty of time in the afternoon and evening where I can check it all, right? But I just want a block of three or four hours where I can work focused without that. 
What have you found with your productivity? Because when I, when I, I mean, that's a great question to ask on Twitter and I was wondering around that, whether you have any tips and hints on performance, particularly in workplaces. Mm. So how, how do we get more done with less time and, and less to do? So what did you find? What have you found in terms of your own productivity with having that phone 30 seconds away as opposed to right next to you? Well, so that helped me stay focused on whatever task I was working on. But I like, rather than giving advice, although we've talked about a lot of ideas here that are in Atomic Habits, uh, I'm starting to find more usefulness in questions. Um, so advice is very context-dependent in the sense that it only applies in that situation. But uh, questions are much more useful in a very broad range of contexts. So to link this back to something we talked about earlier with identity, one of the questions I came across from a reader uh, as I was working on the book, is she lost a bunch of weight, and the question she kept asking herself each day was, what would a healthy person do? And that's actually much more useful than a piece of advice that says, like, follow this diet or do this workout, because she can carry that question around with her to every context in life and just keep asking, what would a healthy person do here, and then follow that. And so in the case of productivity, I think a really good question to ask is, what is the work that keeps working for me after it's done? Because there are a lot of things that we do that they're just a task to be finished. And then as soon as they're finished, they no longer work for you. So as an example, we're sitting here recording a podcast. I strongly prefer to do podcast interviews over radio because let's say we sit down for 30 minutes in either case. When the radio interview is done, that work no longer works for me because it was aired and then boom, you're off the air and it's over. But with a podcast, it's recorded. And even right now, as we're sitting here in this conversation, there are other podcasts I've recorded that somebody somewhere is listening to right now. And so it's still working for, him, for me, even though the work is done. Mm. And so I think that uh, that question allows you to identify high leverage places to work. And uh, ultimately, if you start making decisions like that each day, man, that really compounds over a long time. Um, if, you, if you keep doing work, writing Atomic Habits, another example, took me three to five years, but that work, now that it's done, it's still working for me right now. There are people reading it somewhere. Um, and so that ends up showcasing, I think, to you, the highest leverage places to allocate your attention and effort. Mm, and that, that really lets you compound yourself over the long run. What can I do now that will have a latency uh, further down the track? It's more like what are the most durable tasks? You know, like what is the what are the tasks that uh, continue to deliver again and again even though that hour has already been spent? Yeah. I love sitting in that question. It's certainly something I've been playing with around the power of questions and the right question at the right time. But mm -hmm. also, uh, as human beings, we have a resistance just to, we want to get the answer. And I think just sitting in a question is, is something really, really powerful. We were talking um, off mic before around, you know, we were talking about this year and what it's meant for you and what it's, uh, what it's been like. And you said one of the surprises has been that um, the very thing that you did to get here, which was writing, <laughs> you haven't had the time for <laughs> mm -hmm. because you've had to say yes to a whole bunch of other things. And we started talking about the power of saying yes and saying no. What are the things that you say yes to and what are the things do you say no to at the moment? Yeah, that's a good question. I, as I mentioned to you earlier, like I kind of view when you say yeah, uh, no to something, you're only saying no to that one thing and you can still say yes to anything else. But when you say yes to something, uh, it's like you're saying no to every other option. And so in that sense, yes is a responsibility. It's a commitment, an obligation. And no is an opportunity uh, still. And we don't usually think about it that way. So I, another way I like to phrase this is like, yes is like a time debt. When you say yes to something, it's a debt you have to pay back again in the future. So like if you say yes to a meeting, you have already, you have this debt of one hour for that meeting that you have to pay back later. But no is like a time credit. Um, it's, uh, it retains the option to use that hour for whatever you'd like. And, um, although I can say that, uh, I have been much, it's been much harder for me to practice it. Um, yeah, I was about to say that sounds so appealing, but no right. is hard. I think one thing that's helped a lot is, um, at first I, when the book came out, I started to get, I would get emails about, Hey, do you want to come here to speak? Or do you want to, um, come be part of this event? Or, um, we have this really interesting idea for a podcast. Do you want to partner on that or whatever it is? And there were a bunch of like kind of cool, crazy things that came in the inbox. And if they came in one by one and I made a decision right then, I would only be thinking about what that opportunity was. And I was very likely to say yes, or more likely to say yes. But if we collected all of the opportunities and then put them in a list and then we revisited them at the end of the week, 
then I was looking at opportunities relative to other ones and relative to everything else we had in our list to do. And so it was much more likely that I would like feel the trade-off that that would force me to experience. So I wasn't only thinking about that one opportunity. I was also thinking about how it would impact everything else we were focused on. And so I guess what I'm advocating for here is a little bit of distance between the opportunity and the decision. The more that you can like create space, the less you're likely you are to be sucked into whatever sounds cool in the moment. Um, there was another uh, strategy that I thought was a pretty good one. Brian Cox, who's a physicist, um, we did a radio show together last week. And he said he's been struggling with this. And one of the things that helped him was that whenever someone asks him to do something, the question he tries to turn around in his head is, would I do this tomorrow? Um, and if I wouldn't do it tomorrow, if I wouldn't drop everything I'm doing to fit it in, then I should probably not do it. Because we're if something's like a year from now or six months from now, we're like, yeah, sure, I have time. My calendar's free. But then the time comes, you're like, ah, I kind of wish I wasn't committed to this thing. And so um, the compression of time, the making it more immediate, what that cost is, it, uh, it clarifies whether you should do it or not. And this actually ties back to Atomic Habits. This is one of the concepts I call the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is behaviors that are immediately rewarded get repeated Behaviors that are immediately punished get avoided. And if you can feel the immediate cost of that time commitment, then you're much more likely to avoid it or at least to, to be clear about, yeah, this is actually something I really want to do. So, so um, bringing it forward. I think bringing it into the present moment tiring. or as close to the present as you can mm. is a, a much more powerful way to determine, is this actually a priority I should be focused on? I love that because it actually, at some point, it's going to be tomorrow, right? right. Whether yes. it's in a year's time exactly. or whether it is tomorrow. At some tomorrow. point, it is the present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you bring that forward and how does that then sit with me? So I love that discernment in a really practical level. How do you say no? Even if you've made the decision, but you know you're going to let someone down or it, it is potentially might be a great opportunity because it might be that you're saying yes to one, but both are really good. Mm -hmm. How yeah. do you say no? Well, actually, so two things there. The first, what you just mentioned, they both might be good. This, I think, is the real challenge as uh, as you become more successful or as you, uh, throughout your career, you gain more opportunities or whatever. The hard part, most people know they shouldn't say yes to, like, time-wasting things. Like, we, whatever, we all do it occasionally. But um, most people are like, yeah, okay, I know I shouldn't be watching videos on YouTube or watching Netflix or something. And that's actually not that hard to avoid. It's much harder to avoid, say, items three through six on your priority list, the good uses of time, but they're not great uses of time because you can always rationalize it. You can be like, oh, I'm working on item number four. Like that's fairly important to me, but actually it's a, a distraction. The most dangerous items on your to-do list are ones that look like opportunities, but are actually distractions um, because they prevent you from doing the great work mm. and you can rationalize it because it's good. So, um, but and that's integral, like that's high performance is that ability to decide that discernment between, between what is great and what is good. Yeah. And it's very, it's very hard. And the, um, uh, not only the discernment of it, which is a crucial element, but the practice of it, the, yeah, the courage to say no to good uses of time. That, that's something that I think is, I'm still trying to build it myself. It, it's hard to do. Um, but the other part of your question was, okay, practically, how do you say no? And this is something I could probably get a lot better at. There, I think there's a book called The Power of the Positive No. And essentially the rough version, of, from what I understand it, I haven't read it fully, um, but I had a friend who told me a lot about it. Um, the rough version is that when you say no, also offer an alternative. So, for example, no, um, thank you so much for thinking of me for this keynote event. I'm sorry I won't be able to speak. Uh, I already have a conflict. But here are two other great speakers that you might consider. And, um, or, uh, you know, thank you so much for offering to like partner on building a podcast together. Unfortunately, I'm focused on core business concerns right now and working on a second book. So I definitely can't focus on that. Um, but here are a couple ideas that I think would be interesting for a podcast like that or themes that I would love to see a podcast explore. And what ends up happening is that you're saying no, but people often thank you for it. They're like, oh, thank you so much for these ideas or thank you for the additional uh, recommendations for speakers or whatever. Um, and so I do, uh, I do like that. I like being direct, but also offering alternatives. Yeah, I was just about to say, I mean, the other thing they're thanking you for is not the vagueness. Oh, maybe, and oh, call me in a month when you're actually quite clear. Yeah, that's actually important. brutal. And you see that not just with business, but uh, – 
my wife and I, when we sent out wedding invitations, we had uh, a few different friends who like just put off and put off and put off, like telling us whether they could come or not. And I think when I think back on it now, I think it was mostly they they kind of knew they probably wouldn't be able to come, but they just didn't want to share bad news. And it would have been way better for everybody if they just had said from the start, no, I'm sorry, we can't come. Um, but it, and it actually made it worse for them by putting off the, uh, the conversation they didn't want to have and being, yeah, being more direct, I think is helpful. Brene Brown, I think has a a phrase where she says like clear is kind, basically like the more clear you are, that actually is the kind response, even if it's not the response they were hoping for. Yeah. It might feel impolite, but what's impolite is making it. Yes. Right. Wait longer and right. down the track. We here we are. Um, obviously, we're we're having this conversation in Australia, but we are coming into 2020, so a new year. We talked a little bit about habits and identity. Who are you going to become in 2020? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I like the track that I'm on right now. So most, a lot of it, I think, will be reinforcing current habits that I have, uh, particularly the writing part. I've I mentioned earlier that it took me a long time to step into the idea of I'm a writer. I I held on to, you know, my book Atomic Habits has only been out for a year, but my business I've been running for eight years. So I identified as an entrepreneur for much longer than I did as an author. But I like I like the author part now, um, and so I think stepping into that maybe a little bit more. Uh, maybe that means a second book. I'm not I'm not sure, um, but toying with concepts around that. Um, but then the other one, the one that I feel like is um, I just sent this question out in my newsletter today, which is what is the most neglected important area of your life? And if I think about myself for that, an area that I'm just kind of treading water on right now is training in the gym. Um, I haven't gotten unhealthy this year, but I also haven't made progress. And I think a lot of that has been because I've been traveling so much for the book. And that's an identity I would like to like reinforce and kickstart and kind of motivate more uh, in the new year. Um, so I know I can do it because I've been there before. So it's more about like returning to a past self than it is like becoming something totally new or unknown. But uh, that's an element a- I'd like to be a bigger part of my life. Is there potentially an evolution in that in terms of how you maintain that on the road? Mm. So when you travel, because sometimes it's that routine of I know how to do it when I'm at home, yep. but this life now is going to be on the road a little bit. Daria, so, um, Daria Rose, she's a nutrition blogger, and she has a good concept that I like, which is home court habits and away court habits. You know, so like that's great. Yeah, like oh, okay. when you're in your home court, when you're at your office or at your house. Uh, that's probably the first place to focus on getting your habits dialed in because you spend most of your time there. But occasionally, depending on your job or depending on the phase that you're in your career or whatever, uh, you may be in the away court a lot. Uh, you, you may be on the road a lot. And if, th- if that's the case, then it makes sense to try to figure out what can I do to get habits to stick. And I do think the strategies are a little bit different because when you're at your home court, habits are – the way habits usually work is they're tied to a particular context. So – you know, you always journal in your living room or you always um, do your workouts in the basement or whatever it is. Uh, You have some context where the habit typically occurs. You always listen to podcasts while you're cooking dinner in the kitchen or whatever. Um, But when you're on an away court, the context is always changing. You're always checking into a new hotel or in a different city. And so it's really hard for a lot of people who travel a lot to build habits because of that context switching. So I think one strategy that can be useful is Rather than building the habit around the context, build it around a part of the sequence that always shows up. So, for example, after I check in at the hotel, I will say one thing I'm grateful for. Or after I put my luggage on the bed, I will do 10 burpees. Um, And so you don't know what bed it'll be or what hotel you'll be in or what city you'll be at, but you know that part of the process will always happen. You hope there's a bed. (laughs) Yes, true. Right, yeah. Depends on where you're traveling. Um, But but by focusing on those repeated actions rather than repeated context, that gives you maybe a different entry point for the habit to live or or to kickstart. There's so many angles I could have gone down and this book is great. It's incredibly accessible for people to to tap into and, and maybe next time you're out in Australia, we'll dive into a few other areas. Uh, but I'd love to wrap up this conversation by asking a question that I ask every guest that comes on. Um, the podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does that mean to you to live a standout life? Mm. Probably to live an authentic life or a genuine life to you. Um, so humans are imitation machines and we kind of need to be to survive. You know, like you, um, 
when you're a kid, you imitate how your parents talk or the habits that they do. And then you, you know, go off to university, you imitate how your roommate talks and what they do. And then uh, you get into the workforce and you imitate the habits of your supervisor, your boss, because that's how you thrive in that particular workplace. And so we do that all the time, but I think the downside of that is that we often imitate the goals and uh, objectives of society at large. We A lot of people are living lives that are focused on like borrowed goals, you know, goals that they borrow from the people around them, from their neighbors, from their peers, from what the news says or what they see on social media. And if you can step outside of that, it doesn't mean you shouldn't, should never do those things. But it does mean that you should question whether that's what you want to optimize for, what is authentic to you. And if it is, great. But if it's not, then you need to shift something. You know, like I – if once you figure out what you're optimizing for, I like the question, can my current habits carry me to my desired future? And if they can't, something needs to change. And so I, I think living a standout life – generally means your current habits are carrying you toward your desired future. They are carrying you toward that authentic or genuine or um, unique personal outcome that is right for you rather than just borrowed from the people around you. Love it. Thank you so much for your time, Tim. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I wonder if there's someone in your world, someone who comes to mind that you know who would also love to hear this podcast. Someone who might soak up the insights that you've just heard from this episode. If there is someone that comes to mind, I'm wondering if I can ask a favour. The next time that you see that person or the next time that you spend time with family and friends, why don't you ask to borrow their phone just for a moment, search Standout Life on their podcast platform and subscribe them to this podcast. I reckon they'll enjoy it. And it'll mean that we can keep having these conversations with even more amazing people.